Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 283, recorded January 12th, 2011. Hacking Bluetooth. Security Now is brought to you by Ford. Introducing the all-new 2012 Ford Focus Electric with voice-activated sync and My Ford Touch, featuring gas-free power, zero CO2 emissions, and battery management technology that lets you go the distance. Learn more at FocusElectricPower.com. And by Carbonite. Backing up the files on your PC or Mac is safe and easy with Carbonite. For a free trial, plus two free months with purchase, go to Carbonite.com. Offer code SECURITYNOW. And by MailRoute. MailRoute is secure hosted service that filters virus and spam for companies of any size. To save 10% for the life of your account, visit MailRoute.info. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you online, your privacy, your security, your way of life. And here he is... He's kind of a superhero. <laughs> he doesn't wear a cape. He wears a shirt that says, no, I will not fix your computer. Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always. Always a pleasure. Uh, Back from CES for yeah. you. First time and... I've actually ever gone to the Consumer Electronics Show without killing myself, I have to say. And I guess it's because I had such great help with Tom Merritt and Becky Worley and Sarah Lane our editors, Tony Wang and Jason Howell, edited and produced, and and, and uh, Eileen Rivera, who's absolutely the best producer in the world, produces this show for us. Um, and you came back in one piece. And and they worked, and I didn't. And Lisa Kensel, who was uh, our financial person. And yeah, it was just a, it was really fun to go with a team like that and hit the ground. Tom Merritt said, it's the most fun I've ever had at CES. I actually got to see some of the show. <laughs> I forgot, cool. You know, yeah, so it was fun. Now, I, you know, we were talking before the show, and you said you didn't see anything to knock you out at the CES. Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I watched you guys, and I watched the news, and I am a BlackBerry user, so I'm interested in their in their little uh, tablet. I mean, I think I, I like the size that they're talking about because it's you know enough smaller than the iPad to be more portable, and enough larger than the the iPod Touch or the iPhone to give you more, you know, browsing space for the web. So that's interesting. Although I didn't see what the resolution of it was, but, you know, cert probably enough. I did hear it was high resolution. So Yeah, you know, it's you know. funny. I, I should know that. I'll have it somewhere and I'll find out for you. But, I, yeah, just I, I think that's, to me, the, the RIM playbook. I guess they're calling it the BlackBerry playbook uh, was the product of the show. Um, but, you know, I like the Samsung Galaxy Tab. I know you like Android, and that's pretty nice, too. I yep. think we're going to see some great Android and other, because uh, the BlackBerry is Qunix-based, of all things, uh, operating systems in addition to iOS. It's, it's yeah, and, and you know, QNX is, a, is an old-time, old-school, yeah. really saw, solid, strong, embedded OS. So I was, And real-time, right? It's a real-time yes, OS. Yes, it, um, it, it, was, it was what people, it's what engineers would license when they needed to, to do, like, you know, real heavy-duty process control 
real-time work. Right. And so when I was delighted when I saw that RIM had grabbed up QNX, it's like, oh, this, you know, there could be some some good results from that. So, you know, basically it was a kernel that was very mature that they've built this uh, this GUI tablet on top well, of. Well, wait so, you see the multitasking capabilities. Uh, and I guess this is where having a real-time OS makes a big difference. It, 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 you know, it's incredible. And they've added a great touch interface. It feels very modern, but you're right. It's, it's a, it's a stable and well, well tested. <laughs> and I do love that they don't miss an opportunity to mention that it runs flash applications. Yeah. Everybody says that I'll be, you know, I actually didn't look at the, I should have at flash performance. It does have, get this, Steve, dual one gigahertz processors mm. so if it can't run flash what can and it's got a the the uh, it's a tegra 2 chip they wouldn't it's funny blackberry said we don't uh, talk about that but amd or i'm sorry um uh nvidia which makes the tegra 2 has been trumpeting it for <laughs> all week uh that's an amazing processor with nvidia class geforce gpu in addition to the two gigahertz processors and yeah. a gig of ram that's a real computer and it was what wasn't it around the ces timing that we first really learned that Microsoft Windows was being ported over to the ARM architecture. Yeah, yeah so that's interesting, too, where that they're was saying, one of the, That was one of the stories, I think, of the show, is the, the uh, decreased dominance of Wintel. And mm -hmm. Intel's got to scramble at this point. They're, they're, I mean, now Intel's completely in charge. I'm not saying that. It's funny, because Microsoft and Intel still are the big guys. But what you see is, it, is, is, some, is a movement away from them to ARM, Instead yes. of Intel and uh, and to frankly Android. to Android and and iOS and maybe even QNX instead of uh, Windows and I think that that's telling. Yeah. Anyway, very so, uh, very there, there were as always. It, it's one of those things where you go to the show and it's hard to see the forest for the trees. And uh, maybe when you come back, you start to say, "Hmm, ah, oh, hmm." And I, one of the one of the things I thought was Microsoft had a big booth, Intel had a big booth, but that's not where the story was. Right. What else is on? Uh, should we get to security now? <laughs> Maybe we should do that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's your show. I'm sorry. What, what? I was just about to talk, start, start talking about the odd Nintendo warning about young kids oh, who yeah. aren't supposed to look at, their, at yeah. their 3D display. And a lot of, of orthopedic, not orthopedic, pediatric ophthalmologists have said, what? We're unaware of any such phenomenon you know, uh, that would affect, you know, eye development. And so it's like, well, okay, it just sounds like Nintendo's hedging their bets. And it's a CYA, don't, don't, yeah. Exactly. They yeah. just want to say, hey, if, if anything ever does turn up, they'll say, hey, we warned you, we right. told you. So it's like, okay. I'm fine, almost but. tempted to put a, you know, warning on all our shows saying, if you're epileptic, don't, don't watch because there might be strobe action. I don't know. Because it's funny on, on, on the screensavers, we used to get e e emails from people saying, I'm epileptic. And, you know, whatever that was you did, uh, really is dangerous, and and, and I'm sensitive yeah. to that. But I don't know what it is. Please you know? don't wave your arms around right. at at 13 hertz. Right. Yeah. So maybe there are some people who are at risk with the 3ds, but who knows? Well, eventually we're going to talk about hacking Bluetooth. Hmm. <laughs> um, that's our subject three, of the day today. That's our topic for the day. Three weeks ago, we covered all of the. And, you know, in propeller head winding detail, uh, the technology of Bluetooth, how the protocols operate, how the crypto operates, the nature of pairing of Bluetooth device addresses, and, you know, all of the, the minutiae of that. And I promised then 
that we would next talk about the dark side, that is the hacking side. And there's has been a huge amount of work done by the bad guys um, and some of the gray hat hackers too. People who say, well, we don't want to really do anything bad. We're just curious what we could do if we wanted to. So our topic today is is hacking Bluetooth. And of course, we've got updates and news and uh, and even a little bit of a rata. Yay. Well, let's, let me just, before we get into this, I would like to thank Ford because they're the company that brought us down there. They made some big announcements at CES, including a huge announcement and very interesting because they did it at the Consumer Electronics Show. Instead of at the Detroit Auto Show, which is going on now, they announced that they were going to do a Focus Electric Vehicle. Huge. Ford has uh, Ford's been doing hybrids for as long as anybody, 10 years, I think, in the Fusion. But this is their first consumer electric vehicle. I think they have uh, a, uh, a utility van, a, you know, like a, a fleet van for driving around town, delivery van. But uh, this is their first consumer vehicle. And let me tell you, they hit it out of the park. Wow. I am so impressed. Lithium-ion batteries, high voltage capacity, higher than... In fact, the Ford Hybrid Electric and the plug-in vehicle, uh, it, 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 it charges in three hours, which is twice as fast as anybody else. Uh, that's, of course, on a 240-volt circuit, but they've gone to, this is smart, to Best Buy. The Geek Squad has the 240 outlets that you need to install, and we'll install it for you. It's part, it's, they're really focused on making this an easy process. Of course, it'll use 120. It's got a regenerative braking system, so, uh, of course, it charges the battery when you brake. It's going to offer a miles per charge. That's the new, you know, you can't do miles per gallon. <laughs> That's the new metric. <laughs> the new metric, miles per charge, uh, that, that is, is, is equal to anything on the market today. They're not talking about range yet, but I think that's their way of talking about range. In other words, whatever the other guy can do, we can do too. So um, I'm, I, this is my next car. I, I'm absolutely convinced. I sat in one. It is beautiful. The price is amazing. Uh, the electric will be available next year, uh, and it's it's going to be probably the most affordable way to get around town. And as people put these charging stations, GE showed some uh, really sweet-looking charging stations that municipalities are going to start putting around. And as this starts to happen, you'll be able to drive somewhere, plug in, go to a th- go to you know go to your three-hour meeting or whatever, and, and you're fully charged, and you go back home. And, of course, in all of the great new Ford vehicles, you've got to look for the sync in my Ford Touch. That's the hands-free operation that I just love. The Focus Electric will have sync with my Ford Touch, which and adds commands for battery management, as well as, of course, the usual entertainment, climate control, phone, and navigation. And there is also an iPhone and Android app that will control the car. And it gives you, and I love this, they're so smart, achievement awards for economical driving, for how much gas you've saved. It's so cool. Sync now understands more than 10,000 voice commands in total. It is the best way to stay connected without endangering yourself or others because your hands are on the wheel, your eyes are on the road, and yet you're connected with the the world and with your engine. So thank you, Ford, for uh, an exciting vehicle. I cannot wait to see this and for supporting our coverage of CES 2011. I'm really thrilled with this partnership. Um, because you know, we talk, I talked to the CEO, Alan Mulally. He's just a visionary, and I could go on and on about some of the interesting things. Well, I'll give you one. They're building the assembly line. First of all, the the Focus is a is a world car, so 
everything except what he calls the top hat. Just the minor, some minor exterior design changes worldwide to accommodate things like narrower streets. But essentially, this car is the same car to be made everywhere in the world. That that gives you an economy of scale. But this is what I liked: the assembly line, same assembly line, can build diesel, gas, hybrid, plug-in hybrid, or electric. So this solves a big problem because Detroit's had a real problem building the right number of electric vehicles. Now, as demand ramps up, they can completely satisfy demand with just-in-time manufacture. And I think this is one of the things that really inspires me about Alan. Uh, he is an engineer and approaches these problems from an engineer's point of view. And he is laser-like in his focus. What a great company and a great vehicle. Fo- if you want to find out more, focuselectricpower.com. Focuselectricpower.com. I'm on the. I'm already on the list to get one. I can't. And I told Jennifer about it. And she's jumping up and down. I might even trade in the Mustang to be economical. So let's talk. We had Patch Tuesday happened while yes. uh, yesterday. Yep, a couple of days ago we uh, had a relatively uneventful Patch Tuesday. Um, just two different things were fixed. There was a uh, a problem with Microsoft's data access components, which was a critical rated vulnerability across the board. So all versions of Windows that Microsoft is currently supporting, because that's a common component across their platforms, um, had uh, some problems that they fixed. And then a so-called important, as opposed to critical, vulnerability in the Windows Backup Manager. So both of those are a little bit of a yawn. What's interesting is that that means many of the zero-day vulnerabilities, which have just surfaced, there's the CSS stuff and some other exploits that we've talked about in recent weeks, were not addressed by this. There are, as we've said, some quick fix, um, you know, single button click on the announcement fixes for those things, which Microsoft is is has suggested while they're working on permanent fixes. But I was surprised that actually we had as little done for this first um, update of the new year. Um, but that's all. And nothing from anybody else. Uh, Adobe didn't have anything happening. And, because everything's and, perfect, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, there was news, but I thought, well, I'm not sure this quite makes the bar. There was news of someone who found a way around the Flash 8 sandbox um, in in Flash. Uh, Adobe has uh, put a sandbox around and he, there was an information leakage exploit. It was like, eh, okay, you know, we're all at Flash 10 and there's a sandbox there that is not workable around in the same fashion. So I thought, oh, okay, we'll, we'll leave that one and see if anything develops there further. But, but otherwise, not that much. Um, there, we, we talked a little bit last week about the topic for in two weeks, which is the so-called uh, browser fuzzing, which uh, Michael Zalewski, uh, who works for, uh, for, for Google, did, which revealed more than 100 problems across the board every single browser that he fuzzed and we'll be talking about what that is in two weeks was found to have problems and and you remember that there was some confusion because he provided microsoft with his his proof of concept code back in last summer in july and they were unable to reproduce the problem so they said then he ended up telling them, I mean, with lots of notice that he would be going public with this at the beginning of 2011, as he did. And it wasn't until halfway through December that they 
apparently woke up and said, wait a minute, uh, we don't want you to do that because uh, now we're able to reproduce the problem. Well, it turns out I was curious about what this, you know, what was going on. And Microsoft has now said more about why they're not considering it a huge concern. And again, we'll talk about this a little more in two weeks when we go into this in detail. But it turns out that it takes a a series of specific HTML pages to be loaded one after the other in order to incrementally destabilize Internet Explorer to get it to the point where the final problem of the last page to be loaded manifests in this exploit. So they're saying, well, yes, you know, you were able to destabilize IE and we agree that's not a good thing. But if you just do the page that makes it hurt, like all by itself, there's no problem. No big deal. You have to, yeah. you have to precede it with all these other things, which, which to his credit, Zalewski's fuzzing program does find and so yeah we'd like you know hopefully microsoft's going to take this seriously and figure out what's going on but that sort of explains how there's how how the you know like how this fell through the cracks and what the controversy was between microsoft's position and and his and for what it's worth i think he really did give them sufficient notice and that they probably should have been paying a lot more attention to this rather than trying to stop him here at the last minute um just in sort of generic worrisome news that affects our listeners sort of tangentially i did pick up a little note that the california supreme court came to a troubling ruling on monday january 3rd right off the bat here in 2011 um they ruled that police can search cell phones without a warrant oh um you know it's funny at ces i met Three different cell phone forensic people, uh, including the guy who did the Scott Peterson cell phone. Ah. It's it's a big, you know, <laughs> it seems like that's that's the thing you want is the cell phone. Well, yeah, well, and, and exactly because people have, you know, think about our own use of the cell phone, which is why I wanted to bring this up from, from a privacy standpoint and technology impact. You know, it's really not a phone as much anymore as it is a computer. I mean, there's email, right. there's texting logs, there's all your contacts. I mean, the, you know, a, a chunk of who you are and what you have done in the last couple of years, in some cases, can be stored there. And what's, what is very troubling, and I don't know that this California Supreme Court ruling is going to stand, the, the defendant of Gregory Diaz, who was caught in a sting operation purchasing drugs from a police informant, the, uh, the defense attorney intends to appeal this to the United States Supreme Court. Because um, what happened was at the time of his arrest, police seized his cell phone and found text message logs implicating him in additional drug-related activities. Um, and it's the... It's the, it's the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution is what protects us from so-called unreasonable search and seizure. Um, the California Supreme Court disagreed with his defense, stating that cell phones are similar to personal effects such as clothing, which can be searched by arresting officers, which many people, I mean, this has generated a huge 
backlash on the net and in 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 you know privacy rights blogs and and even other judges have felt that well in fact the dissenting opinion it wasn't a unanimous opinion the dissenting opinion from the California Supreme Court argued that this really raised some concerns um other people are saying well if this if if cell phones qualify then what's to prevent it from being PDAs and and laptops you know if the person's carrying them at the time of their arrest so so anyway um it's uh it's worrisome yeah, and uh, uh it turns out that they they likened it to a previous ruling uh that that equated it to police inspection of a cigarette pack taken from a subject no that's was, not <laughs> it's exactly not the same. I, mean, I mean yeah to, you know a phone is now a computer so that's like this you know what liken it to the wallet how about taking my wallet and searching it well how does that feel is that legal hmm wow yeah this just shows you how clueless the courts are well the good news is we've got people standing up for our rights and i'm sure this will not this i mean this this is too too troubling a ruling to to go unchallenged. So I think it's probably yeah. likely that it, I mean to me it feels like something that, that, that might interest the Supreme Court from from this standpoint. I hope that you know it, it, that just doesn't make it uh, set further in stone. Yeah. Um, also, there was buzz since we last talked about something that's still very ill defined and is worrisome, which is this so-called identity ecosystem, which the current presidential administration, our Obama administration, is is continuing to talk about. Now we're apparently a few months away from them unveiling something, which is 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 first of all, it's not mandatory; it's optional, whatever it is. But um, I was reading some of you know some some statement from Obama talking about how you know with with the increase in e-commerce uh this season it was up 4 or I think 5.5% over the holidays over a a a year ago so you know which is a a huge increase and so it's it's people you know in in the in the government beginning to awaken to many of the things that we've talked about on the podcast, like, you know, open ID and multi-factor authentication. And, you know, we've been dealing with the technology side of of absent any legislation, absent any, you know, formal solution. What can we do to solve the problem now? Well, even even my own little perfect paper passwords and 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 similar things. So now we're beginning to see at the governmental level them rummaging around and saying well we need to do something about this we need to you know provide solutions to our citizenry um i just hope they don't really screw things up yeah so we'll keep our eye on whatever this identity ecosystem is many people uh who are following me on twitter um sent a note about something that reuters picked up and then it was echoed by many other news um uh feeds which talked about a new WPA vulnerability. Um, it was really troubling because it isn't a new vulnerability. The, the, the Reuters headline said a security researcher, this is, I'm quoting, a security researcher says he has figured out a quick and inexpensive way 
to break a commonly used form of password protection for wireless networks using powerful computers that anybody can lease from Amazon.com over the web. So, so the question is, is WPA vulnerable to this new password cracking tool? Um, and the answer is no. Um, so the, the story behind this is interesting, though. A German computer security consultant named Thomas Roth um, uh, essentially used the, the Elastic Computing Cloud, which is one of the services that Amazon offers. You know, we've, we, we, we've talked about AWS, the, the, the um, database in the sky, in, in the cloud, for example, which Jungle Disk is able to use. Well, they have, they have the ability also to do something called Elastic Computing Cloud. They, they call it EC2, which allows you to essentially grab or, or commit a large number of processors and get them all working at your beck and call. So essentially what this guy has done is he's, he's demonstrated the fact that with this cloud computing, where we're actually talking about computing resource, not just storage resource in the cloud, that, that you could, you could grab a bunch of, of, of computing resource that could potentially be used for brute force attacks and get the benefit of parallel computing without having to spend tens of thousands of dollars to do that. You know, we've talked about in the past, other people have used like walls of, of PS3, you know, PlayStation 3 systems, which have very powerful graphics processing units, GPUs, to, to like do brute forcing attacks on crypto. So what he did was he, uh, and I don't think I would have admitted this were I, he, were, were I this person, but he says he cracked the, the crypto of a, a WPA-protected Wi-Fi network in his neighborhood in, I think he said, 20 minutes. And then he subsequently improved the technology so that it ought to be able to do it in six minutes. So, so the reason this is not a concern for anyone who listens to this podcast is nobody is who listens to this podcast will still be using, hopefully, an easy-to-crack password. This is all about the password being easy to crack. If it, is, if it is random letters and numbers, and if it is long, then it will not be easily cracked by a brute force cracking tool. And again, the, the number of bits per character in a, in a large alphabet password, that is a password whose characters are upper and lower case, special characters and digits, basically just looks like just jumbly gibberish, the kind of thing that, that you know, my own password generator at GRC generates for people, you know, take as a, a chunk of as much of that as you want and use that as your key and you're safe against this. But this does this does demonstrate something that actually will we'll come to a little bit later when we're talking about hacking Bluetooth. And that is that assumptions have been made in the past about the available computing resource that were available not to nation states, 
but to individuals. And, you know, we've seen the walls of, of PS3s that have, you know, gone after cracking. The good news is that we have so many bits and, and many bits create so many combinations that, you know, there's concerns about the future of quantum computing that's supposed to be so much more powerful. Well, this guy using a, a chunk of computing resource was able to test 400,000 potential passwords per second. So that's a lot more than you can test on a PC. But it's still, that doesn't even begin to get close to the number of, of passwords that were able to test um, uh, or were able to, to have as, as potential when you have a, a huge number of, of bits um, that uh, is potential in the password. So this, you know, generated a lot of news. Uh, anybody who's got an insecure password was already insecure. This demonstrates, though, now that individuals for, uh, apparently he was, th- this was costing him 28 cents a minute to use th- that much computing resource. So the point, the, 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 the lesson being the computing resource is now elastically available, it's rentable, and it does, it does up the ante for the need to um, make sure that your passwords are, are bulletproof. Yeah. yeah, as if you, know, you needed an encouragement. Exactly. But as, as I was going to say, anybody who's listening to the podcast um, already will be using a password that is not in a dictionary and would just take still, you know, hundreds of thousands of years even at this level of computing, to to try your random gibberish password. It's just not going to happen. And lastly, uh, I just thought I would check in on Fire Sheep and note that it has crossed a million downloads. When I looked this morning uh, before sending the notes to you, Leo, it was 1,043,468 downloads of Fire Sheep, which is oh, the, man. That, oh. the fire. It's fire. not slowed down. No. It's it's continuing to crank along. So that's our download add-on for Firefox, which allows people to go into any open Wi-Fi hotspot and and unfortunately with shocking ease hijack many of the social networking sites and other services that people are using, um, unfortunately, without encryption on open Wi-Fi networks. Yeah. I did have one little bit of a rata from a Swedish listener of ours who's actually located in Orange Vale, California, Peter Jakubicki, he wanted just to mention that Sony had not bought Ericsson, that Sony Ericsson Partnered. is a joint venture. Yeah. Exactly. That they the corrected idea- me. On, I, when I, we, we, they have a new phone, the Xperia, and I said the same thing. And I said, no, no, we're a joint venture. Yep. I'm sure back then when I first heard it, I what I read was, Sony bought Ericsson. I just, I had this clear image in my mind that, you know, big fish had swallowed little fish, but nope, not the case. And so he said, we Swedes care about these details. So please fix this. And I said, okay, Peter, I will definitely do that. Even though it's a Finnish Um, company, isn't it? Well, I better not uh, say that now. (laughs) Yeah, get to a very good point. Yes. (laughs) Whoops. Um, And I did have a fun note from uh, a Martin Parrott who wrote to say Spinrite had saved another system. And he said, Steve, I've written before 
But SpinRed has done it again. And I wanted to send another email to say how much I appreciate a great product. A friend of mine had a machine with SCSI drives. Don't hear that that much these days anymore. With SCSI drives installed that are around six years old. One drive recently started showing errors in Windows Event Viewer. And I took my SpinRite disk over to check it out. Indeed, it appeared the drive was starting to fail. The drive has always had blocks marked as bad ever since it was new. I ran a type 3 scan on, that's a SpinRite level, SpinRite level 3 scan on the drive, and four hours later, it finished. I checked the status of the drive, and not only had it refreshed the entire drive, all the bad blocks had been recovered, and the map showed all sectors as good and working. We rebooted the server, and Windows is happy again. After a few hours of use, there were no more warnings in the Windows event logs. The machine was stable enough now to allow full backups, which could not be done before. And it appears it will see a bit more use until new drives can be ordered and installed. If only other software was as dependable and useful. Thanks again, Martin Parrott. So Yay. thank you, Martin, for the, the report of SpinRite success. We're going to get to, a, it's not snarfing, Bluetooth hacking. It's kind of, some of it's snarfing, right? Oh, well, we've got blue jacking, blue bugging, blue snarfing, <laughs> blue diving. We got something called Hello Moto. Hello Moto! The, the, the car whisperer. <laughs> blue tune, blue printing, and red fang. Oh, my. I the, love the it. The hackers have been busy. Yes, they have. We'll talk about that in just a second. Before we do, though, let me talk about backing up. You know, uh, half the time the problems I hear about uh, people are having... Uh, with whatever, you know, their hard drives or whatever, there wouldn't be nearly the crisis, the screams, the howls of pain, if they just had a good backup. A good backup takes a lot of the sting out of everything. And if you don't have a backup strategy, you ought to have one. Now, uh, my friend Peter Krogh, who wrote the Digital Asset Management book, worked with the Library of Congress and the Association of Professional Photographers to create a site that I highly recommend. It's called dpbestflow.org. And there's a page on there on what Peter calls his 321 backup. You could also buy his damn book, the Digital Asset Management book, and read about it. 321 backup. Now, this, this is in my mind, you know, photographers, look, you take a picture of a wedding and you lose the pictures. Bridezilla ain't nothing. You're dead. You cannot lose those pictures. And, and you're in the same boat. You've got stuff on your hard drive that is priceless. This is why backup is so important to pros and it's so important to you. So here's what 321 is. Three is you need three copies of everything. Now, that could be the original plus two backups. That's fine. If you erase your original, you need another another backup, right? Three copies of, of whatever it is. That's three. Two is two different forms of media. If you put every, all your eggs in one basket, like CD-ROMs, DVDs, hard drives, you're running a risk. What if, you know, and as we've started to learn, DVDs and CDs start to degrade after a while. You know, that's not good. So two forms of media, and then the most important one, the final one, is one of them. One of those three backups has to be off-site. So a good strategy, your, your original on your computer, an external hard drive where you're backing up to all the time, and then an off-site backup like Carbonite. See, Carbonite is in the cloud. So even if the worst happens, fire or flood or somebody comes and steals everything, that laptop gets left at the airport, you've got a copy on the Internet that you can get to any time and with any computer. Well, I don't like backup solutions where you have to restore 
the operating system, then install an application, and then you can restore your... I don't like that. I want to be able to get to my data anytime, anywhere. That's what Carbonite does. You log into your Carbonite account. There's your data. They also have an iPhone app and a BlackBerry app, so you can verify your data whenever, wherever, on any computer. I like that. It's automatic, so you don't have to think about it. That's really, To me, I would add that to 321. I'd say 3210. Zero is zero thinking about backup. You shouldn't have to think about it because you won't do it. It should just happen. Carbonite, once you install it, immediately starts backing up whenever you're online. 128-bit SSL, so it's you know, even in an open Wi-Fi hotspot, it's completely secure. You can add additional triple desk or blowfish encryption so you, you have complete privacy if you want. That stuff is backing up all the time using whenever you're online without slowing down your system or slowing down your Internet connection. It's very savvy. PC or Mac and affordable. You might be saying, well, all that, what's that going to cost me? $55 a year for all the data on your internal drive. Unlimited backup on your internal drive. So you don't have to think, do I have a terabyte, two terabytes? You don't have to worry about it. Okay, here's the pitch. Try it free. Go to Carbonite.com. Use the offer code security now. You could try it free for two weeks without any credit card. Just see how it works. There are some limitations on the free trial, but you'll get an idea of how it works. Now, if you decide to buy, use the offer code again, security now, and you get two months free as well. It's a really good deal. Look, if you don't want to use Carbonite, that's fine. Please back up. And if you, and if you want to make it easy on yourself at, a, at the most affordable price, there are other ways to do it in the cloud. None are as affordable or as easy as Carbonite. But do it, please. And, if, and I would like you to try Carbonite because I think you'll like it. Carbonite.com. Use the offer code security. Now, I use it. In fact, when Abby went to college, the first thing I did is put Carbonite on the laptop. Carbonite.com. Offer code security now. Now, let's see. Let's snarf or whatever it is. <laughs> Bluetooth time. Um, was it Carbonite.com or CarbonitePro.com? There's two. Oh, that's a good question. Pro is the business version. Ah. And, and that's a different, there's a different st pricing structure. In that case, you pay for the data used, not just a flat ah. fee. And then there's okay. consumer version, which is Carbonite.com. Thank you for asking, Steve. Just want to make sure we have the right URL. You bet, baby. So when I, when I began three weeks ago um, to dig deeply into Bluetooth, my eyes just crossed when I ran across the history of hacking of Bluetooth. And I thought, okay, I, there's no way we can cram all of this into the same podcast. So I decided to do the, the deep technology and operation of Bluetooth first and then swing back around and talk about the dark side, the, the hacking side, the history of all this. Um, if it was six years ago, in 2004-2005, we'd, we'd be in trouble because um, there were, looking at, at sort of the, the characterization of the problems that I found when I looked at, at what had been possible in the past, it was clear that it was a case of people throwing Bluetooth onto existing platforms like PDAs that were not about Bluetooth. They were about being a PDA. But then they said, oh, you know, some of the competition has Bluetooth. We better add that on. So they, they threw in a little Bluetooth radio and dropped in a Bluetooth stack for providing this insanely complex protocols that the, the committees had worked out. And they said, oh, yeah, we got Bluetooth also. The problem was that, I mean... 
our listeners, again, who are getting a sense for the nature of security and, and how much a conscious effort security requires, could already guess that security wasn't even a consideration, unfortunately, for these people. Functionality was getting it out the door, making it sell. Uh, and so what was discovered back then was that there were all kinds of problems. Um, one of the developers who, or, or, or hackers who was looking at this in 05 had a, a PDA which, which did not need to be paired but was was able to provide file sharing functionality when it was just in discoverable mode. So it was essentially wide open if if he left his PDA as discoverable. So none of the security which Bluetooth always provided from the beginning was engaged in many of these early devices. The, the concern is that, and I'll remind us from three weeks ago, that that any connection to a Bluetooth device, even absent any pairing, does actually create a protocol flow. There's, uh, it's called L2CAP. L2CAP is the the lowest level protocol, which which has to be established before you can do pairing, which implies that there is a handshake and a, a protocol level connection even without pairing what what pairing does is establish uh, allow essentially the establishment of a secret shared symmetric key which the bluetooth devices on each end of the connection use in order to drive their their crypto system in order to turn the plain text that they would be sharing into ciphertext. But the packets always, even when they're encrypted, they contain the MAC address, the the, the Bluetooth um, essentially ID, the, the, the hopefully unique ID of the Bluetooth device. It turns out that one of the problems has been that many of the Bluetooth IDs historically were not as unique as they should be. So in some cases, the manufacturer shipped them all with the same one, which was a problem because the first 24 bits of the ID identifies the manufacturer. The second 24 bits is supposed to be unique for that manufacturer. But that meant that if someone noticed the, 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 the make and model or just the brand of, of device, they could often guess your your ID, and it turns out that even a non-discoverable device will respond to its correct MAC address, even when it's in non-discoverable mode, which allows you to establish a connection to the device if you know its MAC address, which normally um, you're you're only able to get because the device won't respond to a an, an anonymous query saying, "Hey, can anybody within my um, coverage range, hear me. So, okay, so things have gotten a lot better since then. Um, blue jacking, which unfortunately was, um, when, when, when we think of blue jacking, we would think Bluetooth hijacking because that's, you know, the um, uh, 
what what is implied by the use of the suffix jacking turns out has nothing to do with hijacking. It's that it was done first by a guy whose name was Ajack. So he called it, he, he named it <laughs> blue jacking. <laughs> That's cause good. Because he, he, he had come up with it. It turns out that was nothing except the ability to send unsolicited text messages to someone. So some of the early devices would accept unsolicited text messages. It was, it, you, it was just the ability to pop something up on someone's screen. Um, and often these text messages would identify the name of the sending device. So if you named your sending device something, for example, like I'm watching you, then that's what would pop up on the screen and upset people. Um, so, so blue jacking turns out to be much less of a concern than, for example, um, blue snarfing, which, <laughs> which, which is so much worse anyway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, sn- snarfing um, is net slang for unauthorized copying. When, mm-hmm. when you snarf something, right. you're, you're, you're essentially sucking in information which is unauthorized. And afterwards you have um, to go num, num, num. precisely so uh there's an interesting site uh www.bluesnarf.blogspot.com that talks about blue snarfing and how um when this was available when this could be done the bluetooth calendars contact lists email text messages photos basically the contents of people's phones were um, available and and for example, you know we all remembered that we talked on the podcast about how Paris Hilton famously had her phone blue snarfed that's that that's what was done to it. She left it in discoverable mode, and in her case, there was a there was a bug in the in the implementation of Bluetooth on her make and model of phone that exposed it to blue snarfing so so in this case, it required both being discoverable and and having a problem with its Bluetooth protocol stack. It turns out that that the Bluetooth technology implements the uh, something that'll be that'll be fam- familiar to us old school modem users. You remember Leo the the famous Hayes AT command set. The AT was short for attention. And the idea was that you wanted to be able, with a modem, to to mix commands and data through the same channel. That is, you didn't have a a like a control command channel separate from the data channel. So there, you needed a way in order to mix the commands and and the data together. And so this so-called AT command set was was originally conceived to allow commands to sort of be intermixed in data and and have them treated properly and that AT command set has has survived and been extended over time and so a lot of what i ran across when i was looking in detail at this hacking um many of the hacking tools require linux they you know they were all done on the linux platform and tools were developed source code is freely available but you saw a lot of AT commands passing back and forth through um, essentially the term that they used for all this was blue bugging, which was sort of a, a 
a, a, a catch-all for uh, the ability to read, write the phone's SMS store, re- get read, write access to the phone book. And this was done through access to the Bluetooth AT command set, which if the phone was discoverable and if there were some known problems with it, um, that sort of gave a low-level hacker access to this. Interestingly, there are not many high-level tools, no simple-to-use GUI tools for this. It, it all sort of stayed down in, in, the, in the hacking level. Um, most of these things have, have now failed to be useful. I would say anyone who's, who's purchased a Bluetooth phone in the last couple of years or who's kept their firmware, their phone firmware up to date, really doesn't have much to worry about. There, there are penetrating or penetration testing software suites available, which you can either install on phones or on on um, on personal computers running Linux, which will will pull the area, look for discoverable phones, and then and then essentially fingerprint the phone or as they call it, blueprint the phone in order to... De- in order of course to de- they do. <laughs> of, course, of course they do. The make and model of the phone, um, there's a protocol called uh, SDP, uh, Service Discovery Protocol, which, which if your phone is discoverable, you're able to make that first low-level connection o- over that L2 CAP protocol. Then d- the Service Discovery Protocol enumerates which services that Bluetooth device offers. And it turns out that there's a lot of additional information that is leaked there, which gives the hacker um, uh, more of a foothold. I talked about this Hello Moto attack, um, which is a, a classic example of, of the bugs that were unfortunately in the early Bluetooth implementations. Um, reading from the the description that i found of the hello moto attack it says that it takes advantage of the incorrect implementation of the trusted device handling on some motorola devices the attacker initiates a connection to the unauthenticated obex push profile pretending to send a v card and you may remember leo remember that obex was that that oh yeah, the V card protocol right. that was around where you you were able to like beam somebody else mm-hmm. your your essentially the contents of your business card. Was it? It was a Microsoft thing, right? Uh, don't like remember. It. Probably not. they had some partners because I remember certainly non Windows devices did support right. that. Um, and so it turns out that if you were if you initiated a connection through Obex pretending to send the user a V card. And then interrupted the sending process prior to it being finished. There would be there would be no no alert on the phone because you hadn't finished what you started. However, this required no interaction on the um, on the receiving end, and the and as a consequence, the attacker's device was stored in the Motorola phones. List of trusted devices. That so, is on, so it's done. You you always have access from then on. Exactly. Yeah. Th- th- then you're essentially trusted, and that allows you to bring up um, 
bring up a trusted connection, and then you're able to use those AT commands to dump the the contents of the uh, contact list to send uh, and receive SMS messages. Basically, you turn their phone into your modem and also the database in their phone you have full access to. By initiating that, that, that uh, OBEX, send them a V-card and abort it before it's being done because this wasn't handled properly in Motorola uh, devices, you were then added to their trusted list. Now, now, the one thing, I mean, so basically, you know, I'm sure Motorola has fixed this years ago. That's, that's what the Hello Moto hack had been. There are people who uh, do something called Blue Tune, T-O-O-O-N-E, um, uh, to essentially, they're, they're talking about tuning as in tuning an antenna where they use a high-gain antenna to hugely increase the range of Bluetooth dongles, where they'll take a little Bluetooth dongle apart and essentially uh, hook up a coax cable to it to a a high-gain antenna. We have talked about how Bluetooth sort of uses its limited range as one aspect of security, the idea being it's sort of, you know, people feel comfortable with the, the, oh, well, this, you know, only goes 10 meters so I don't need to worry about attacks from further away than that. Sort of, you know, the idea being that if if this was, you know, global in 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 distance, you'd have you'd be much more subject to hacking than if it just being a, a personal area network. So this blue tuning does weaken that the argument that Bluetooth has limited range because there there have been people successfully hacked over distances up to, for example, a mile away. Now, the the one thing that's a, I don't it, wait a minute. Yeah, a mile. I I thought Bluetooth was was ten meters. Yes. Um, however, there are three different classes of radio power, and uh, class one, two, and three. And class one devices are do operate over uh, over a larger distance by default. Uh. But but just as in the case with Wi-Fi, we, we we've also seen this with Wi-Fi. You can take remember the famous Pringles can with right. with Wi-Fi, and essentially it, it's just the size that you want in order to create a, a a directional antenna. So so inherently, Bluetooth is radiating in all directions, and so when it's omnidirectional, you get about about a ten meter radius. But if you took the same amount of power and made it unidirectional, that is, you know, aimed it in a tight beam, then instead of the power radiating in all directions, you're forcing it down a, a specific direction, and you can, just by doing that, get much more distance out of the same radio. Interesting. Wow. Um, Red Fang <laughs> is the name for... for and, uh, I love the and, creativity of hackers. I yeah, just, Red I Fang. <laughs> I don't know why it's not Blue Fang. I guess they got tired of Blue, <laughs> finally. Yeah, yeah. Red, Red Fang finds devices that do not want to be discovered. In other, in other words, it finds Bluetooth, Bluetooth devices that are not, have not been left Ooh, discoverable. That's a problem. That's a problem, and it's still a problem today. The, um, the, now, 
What's interesting is there's been a huge evolution since Bluetooth was designed in the in what hackers have access to. We've talked a few t- times about the notion of a wideband receiver. That is, the, the, the frequency hopping that Bluetooth does, uh, the, the so-called FHSS, frequency hopping spread spectrum technology, where the, where the, the, the master Bluetooth device uses the, you know, its own MAC address coupled with the clock and a, the shared secret which it shares with the slave device, which, which then knows the clock and knows the MAC address of the master, that determines the pseudo-random sequence of, of hopping. And Bluetooth hops um, 1,600 times per second over 79 different channels. The idea being that it was believed that once upon a time, this, this would like render it impossible or you know, much more difficult to hack. Well, it turns out that this is all being done within a relatively narrow um, band. So all you need is a radio which is able to simultaneously receive all the signals within that band, and some digital signal processing makes this whole frequency hopping a joke. I mean, it doesn't even care that, it, that it's doing frequency hopping. It's essentially listening to the entire bluetooth spectrum and sucking the entire spectrum in at once and using you know very inexpensive off-the-shelf technology now it's possible to to essentially monitor all 79 channels at the same time so that this frequency hopping spread spectrum as a security measure is rendered completely useless now the the attack that Red Fang uses is a brute force attack on the MAC address of the Bluetooth device. The MAC address for Bluetooth is identical in size and composition to the MAC address we're familiar with with Ethernet, which is most significant 24 bits is manufacturer, least significant 24 bits is the device ID. However, it turns out that when, when the device IDs were looked at more closely, it was found that the manufacturers, many manufacturers had gotten sloppy. They were, for example, reusing only a subset of the potential 24 bits. 24 bits is 16 million possibilities. So so 16 million, while a lot, is not an impossible number, meaning that if you knew, if you could, for example, see that somebody was using a a BlackBerry or was using a Sony or was using, you know, a uh, uh, whatever well-known brand of phone, the, the, it's, there are, the, the hackers have indexes of all of the MAC addresses associated with a phone. Now, if the person is on the phone, then you have no problem discovering their MAC address because the MAC address is in the clear. It's, it's never encrypt, in, in, encrypted. It's part of the sort of the wrapper outside of the encryption. So, so Red Fang is only necessary to be employed for devices that are not discoverable and not in active use. But if you know the manufacturer number, 
then you've you've got the first 24 bits cold then you only need to deal with the the second 24 which gives you 60 million possibilities the problem is for example all of the sony ericsson phones start out with an e that is that's the that the the e is the first nibble of the of the 3 bytes that compose those 24 bits of device ID. Well, if you know it's an E, that eliminates those four bits. So now you're down from 24 bits to 20 bits, and you've eliminated 16 times, you've you've eliminated um, 16 times the number of possibilities, so you've dropped it down to a million. And we know that a million, that is, you know, 20 bits, is no security in this day and age. So given a relatively short time, it's possible to to get access to a phone through a tool like Red Fang, even if the phone is not discoverable. Once you're once you have that though, you are limited to what you can do um, without having established a pairing with the phone. And the good news is as far as we know, there are no existing security compromises for, you know, uh, very popular present-day Bluetooth-enabled devices. The stacks have solidified, the protocols are established, and Bluetooth, to a much greater degree, is not something being thrown into the mix afterwards. It's, it's something that, you know, especially in today's security climate, there's much more attention being given to. Mm. So that brings us to Car Whisperer, which is still in use and still a problem. You may remember that three weeks ago when I was talking about pairing, I, I mentioned that that in order to do secure pairing, you, we must have an, an exchange of information out of band. That is to say through through a a means that an eavesdropper cannot detect. And the way Bluetooth devices do that is they'll put up a like a six-digit code on one of the screens and ask you, the, the pairer, the human person doing the pairing, to enter this code into the keyboard of the other device. What you've, what you've done by doing that is you've Inform, you've synchronized the devices. You've informed them of something unique, which an eavesdropper cannot know. So you you know you've seen the screen and you've manually moved that information not over the air wirelessly, but you know using your own body, you've moved that information to the other phone. That allows them to perform a maximum security pairing, and as far as everyone knows. There's no way to break that. The problem is that Bluetooth, the, the Bluetooth spec, deliberately scales security down as necessary to deal with devices that lack keyboards or screens. Now, if you're if you're pairing a Bluetooth keyboard, just just a keyboard with no display, then you're still secure because if you're pairing it with a computer that has a display, then that's where it's able to say, type the following thing into your keyboard. 
So you type it in your keyboard. Now, that's not going through the air. That is, no hacker can, can capture your keystrokes. That's going into the Bluetooth stack on the keyboard as, to, and it's being absorbed by the pairing technology, the pairing protocol. Then the result of that mixed with the, the computer's MAC address and a long pseudo-random number and the, um, the master device's clock that generates the pairing. So no attacker eavesdropping is able to, to crack that. The problem is if we come back another notch to a device that even lacks a keyboard and or devices with no display, so they're unable to show you um, a number. Now, there are the good news is to deal with this weakness, there are devices now which do not use a fixed um, pairing number. But unfortunately, just the other day, I was messing around with some Bluetooth speakers, and the manual said when asked for the, um, the ID, the, the passcode of this device, enter 0000. You know, that's what that it all, is. I see that all the time, or 1111, yeah. Or, or 1111 or 1234. Yeah. So, so the problem is that um, um, uh, Bluetooth headsets are probably the biggest culprit. Yeah, because they have no keyboard. Exactly. They've got no keyboard. They they have no display. Um, And it turns out that even today, if they are left in discoverable mode or if cars, if if the technology in the car for doing like hands-free phone um, is left in discoverable mode, and it turns out that for the sake of, of user convenience, many of them just have that on as, as, um, by default. This car whisperer technology, which people have been successfully using from overpasses on freeways, are able to eavesdrop on the occupants of the car just with cars driving by. And so that is That's a, really we, scary, isn't that? Yes, yeah. I mean because because we we were talking about we sort of laughed it off three weeks ago, yeah. saying, "Oh well, you know, if you're close enough to have a Bluetooth connection, you're close enough to hear the person anyway." Except if they're inside their car and they've got you know Bluetooth technology for doing hands free, and that's discoverable, then because there isn't a probably isn't a unique ID. Uh, it's pros- it's possible to pair, and unfortunately, even zero 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 zero. Well, what that gives us ten thousand combinations zero 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 yeah four zeros to four nines nine 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 nine. So that's ten thousand combinations. So in a relatively short time, you can try all of those pairings with a device, and even if it was a random number, if it's not a long random number, you're vulnerable again, and so. Um, that is a that is an existing problem. If if the any of these devices that used a fixed or a short pairing key are left in discoverable mode, then you can pair them typically without any notification of their owner. And I saw demos while I was re- researching this of people sending audio out and receiving audio back from from those devices. Wow! So. Conclusions from all this is with Bluetooth, pairing, the, the security of pairing is our only line of defense. 
the the technology was designed with that understanding. That is, remember from three weeks ago that that Erickson, who initiated this originally, um, and then and then generated a a, a handful of followers until this thing exploded. And there's more. There are more Bluetooth radios now in existence than, than there are 802.11 Wi-Fi. Oh, that's interesting. Radios. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's just been phenomenal. Um, they they deliberately wanted to create a consumer friendly system. So the only thing that I could wish for is that is that there was better discipline on the part of the manufacturers for for not allowing pairing to stay enabled by default. Yes, it's an ease of use thing. I can I can see why manufacturers do it because they want to minimize their tech support calls, but it it makes them vulnerable to um to any mistakes that they may have made anywhere else in their software. You're just much better off if you're not pairable. Certainly, you are trackable if you're pairable. And that's one thing to remember is Bluetooth tracking is being done. There are there are devices being sold which like like by by marketing related companies where they advertise that you know stick this in your showroom window or stick this by the the door and we will log all the Bluetooth equipped people customers who who come in and out and we will let you know if they come back having visited once before. So it's very possible for someone to say, oh, hi, you were here a week ago, which would be a little unnerving, actually. Uh, if, and the way that would happen Shit. is you would left uh, your, your cell phone Bluetooth on and discoverable. So um, pairing is the only line of defense. Uh, historically, pairing could be bypassed um, and the good news, just due to mistakes that have been made in the software in the Bluetooth stack, um, I did run across some references that were that never that where hackers were talking about how it was easy to pair hack if the device had ever been paired with anything else, meaning that if the pairing database had an existing pairing in it, then it was easier to hack. So what that argues for and this is another piece of advice i would i would counsel is remove any unused pairings because apparently exist existing pairings which you're not using do create a little wedge point for someone wanting to attack your phone so rather than just letting them accumulate forever which they would otherwise probably tend to do. I noticed the other day I had four or five in a in a little laptop of mine from some mice that I w- 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 was experimenting with once that I'd long since stopped using. So now it is it is useful to remove pairings you do not need. Good to know. Yeah. Um, the other the other exploit for for um, uh, against Bluetooth involves someone briefly having access to your device. So, for example, uh, kids or spouses or, you know, ex-boyfriends or girlfriends or something, um, you want to make sure that you have removed, again, it's another reason for removing unnecessary or unexpected pairings from your device. If someone briefly had access to your phone, 
paired it with their Bluetooth radio, and then gave it back to you, then that pairing persists. So one vulnerability is that pairings would sneak into your into your Bluetooth-equipped device without your knowledge, which would then give them access to that device in the future. So it's worth looking to see, and as far as I know, all display-equipped devices will allow you to to look at the enumeration of devices that have been paired with it, and it's worth just removing any that you don't need. It's very much sort of like changing your password uh, after uh, you know employees that knew it have wandered off. It's uh, you just don't want to allow that um, access to persist. Um, uh, let's see. So remove any old ones, um, and and finally, as I said three weeks ago. Turn off the Bluetooth completely if you're not needing it. Um, just not having it on at all will save battery power, and that's the only real way to be completely invulnerable to any kind of mistakes that the manufacturer may have made, uh, any mistakes, you know, human error, uh, pairings that were left in that, that, that uh, create vulnerabilities. Just having the radio off completely is really your, your final line of defense. Yeah, most people don't do that because you want it to join automatically when you get in the car or when you get within range, you want it to join up. So turning off Fair. the radio is... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, uh, uh, again, it's, it's a function of use. If, mm-hmm. you're not, if you're a person who's not using a, uh, a Bluetooth uh, headset all the time... Uh, turn it off. Then, then turn it off. If you do need it on, on for, for convenience, you really do need to leave it on, but absolutely make sure that um, it is not discoverable because yeah. uh, that, that can potentially create some problems. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you have a smartphone, you're probably turning, and you want to save your battery, you're probably turning off Bluetooth whenever you can anyway. Right. You shouldn't have it running for no reason. So the takeaway from all of this, from the research I did into the dark side, is that it's, it's technology which is mature enough now that if you take a few precautions, you're really safe. There are, there, are no, there are no known really bad security problems today in Bluetooth. Um, I was carefully looking at the dates of all of the, the, the hacking stuff that I was finding, uh, checking to see whether, whether these problems had been solved. Uh, just across the board, it's, it's a technology that I'm actually very bullish about. I, I think it's, a, it's very useful, very handy. Um, if you keep your phone from or your devices non-discoverable, you're really going to be very safe. Good to know. Steve, you're so good at this stuff. Thank you for giving us the... The thing is, I know when people listen to this show and you, and you cover a topic like this, they know they've got it. That, that, you know, that's the, the landscape. There's nothing left off. So thank you for doing that. Hey, before we wrap, I do want to mention very quickly, don't forget... If you've got spam, you need MailRoute. I've been using it since 2004. If you run your own server, this is what's really great. You change the MX record. All the spam that would be going to you, all the mail that would be going to you, goes through MailRoute first. Think of it as first, I think of it as first stage sewage treatment. It gets out the worst stuff. And let me tell you, that could be a lot. Of the million messages, I got my stats before we started doing this uh, ad, of the million messages I've received in the last 12 months, 970,000 were spam. Only 30,000 were real messages. That's a great way to reduce load on your server with its, uh, its mailbagging technology. If your server's down, don't worry. Mail route's up all the time, and, and they'll hold the mail and, and spool it out to you when your server comes back up. 
And, by the way, not just spam, but viruses, too. MailRoute.info, if you'd like to learn more. It's the anti-spam solution I've been using happily for six years. We've got Tom Meridon, and he's thrilled. And you get 10% off if you use that URL for the life of your account. MailRoute.info. Next week, Steve Gibson. It's a Q&A. Yep, we'll, uh, we'll do a Q&A. I'll ask all of our listeners again to send any thoughts, questions, comments, stuff to grc.com slash feedback. And I will check the mailbag and uh, update everybody on any other news of the day. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll have some fun dialogue with our listeners. Always. I love the mailbag episodes. Uh, grc.com slash feedback. While you're at GRC, of course, check out Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. Check out all of Steve's freebies, too. Shields up, shoot the messenger, decombobulator, perfect paper passwords, the DNS uh, uh, benchmarking utility, and and a whole lot more. It's all at grc.com along with show notes, 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired, and transcripts thanks to Elaine. It's all there, grc.com, Gibson Research Corporation. I should give you a little plug since you mentioned your Twitter handle. Steve is at sggrc on Twitter. He also has a, uh, I don't know, did you tweet from from uh, with the CES stuff at no, I really didn't find anything that I, I felt was tweet-worthy. Um, I do want to um, reiterate that I'm getting great feedback from my Twitter followers. Uh, I crossed the 16,000 level um, a couple weeks ago. And, I mean, I, I read all of the at mentions that are, are coming in. And, uh, uh, for example, uh, some of the things that we talked about today, I, I first picked up on from, from Twitter folks. So I really appreciate that. It's a great way of getting little thoughts and notes back to me. And by the way, Ericsson is Swedish. Nokia ah. is Finnish. Oh, that's right. Yep. That Good. was me, not you. <laughs> but we just want to forestall some emails for next week. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Have a great Actually, week, no. and we'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.